You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Long before President Kennedy, John Quincy Adams suggested that the nation observe the heavens, observe space with a series of observatories. Long before Eisenhower, he proposed a national road and massive infrastructure, roads and canals to connect the country. And long before any modern president and like Washington before him, John Quincy Adams proposed a national university that would celebrate, honor, and improve the great minds of America. Those things wouldn't entirely come to fruition for him. But in terms of presidential vision, he probably ranks as high as any president. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're going to talk about him a bit with Bob Crawford. I'm really excited to have Bob on. He is the co-host of the Road to Now podcast about history and today, and he co-hosts that with Ben Sawyer, and also he's the bassist for the band, the Avid Brothers. Um, and he, he does a whole podcast series called Founding Son, which you can get on iTunes at all those good Apple podcasts, all those good places. Okay, so... Really excited to talk to Bob. Now, uh, we do get into a lot of uh, little like, you know, being that that Bob is an old college friend, uh, we get into a little nostalgia and some talking about current politics and stuff. So if you want to get right to John Quincy Adams, I'd say, you know, go about uh, minute 23 or so of this podcast. You'll get that. Otherwise, listen to the whole thing. Happy to have you. I am here with Bob Crawford. We were co-alumni of uh, Stockton State College in the in the woods of South Jersey. In the 90s. Yeah. Boy, it's-, <laughs> it's insane, isn't it? I, I, what was I thinking the other day? I saw something about 1994, something that happened in 1994, and I, I realized that I've known Bruce Carlson since uh-huh. before that. Right. WLFR, Lake Fred Radio uh, I mean, in Pomona. 91 is yeah. probably when I met you. And to think, uh, so first of all, Bruce, thank you for having me on the show. I'm Hey, great to have you on. Always honored, always honored when you come on the road to now. Uh, really enjoy talking with you because we go so far back. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe it almost. And um it's. I was just down in the Atlantic City area. It always brings up nostalgia. One of the things to say about where Bob and I went to college is that uh, not only is it a good school, decent, like liberal arts state school type thing, but it's also um, big environmental, big. I went for literature and, and history, and I loved it. But it's also uh, the great part about it is in the middle of the woods in the in the Pine Barrens, and you can walk around, and it's a beautiful thing. You get an education from 
the school and you get an education from the forest around the school, especially for a, a northern New Jersey guy like me where, you know, boy, I really learned a lot down there. But uh, yeah. And Bruce, I have to wonder if it it is at all like it was when we were there. I have no idea. I didn't get a chance to visit, as you can imagine, you know, um, traveling with one spouse like it, it's not very exciting to say, let's go visit my old it is not for them. No, it is not. Atlantic City itself, I find immensely interesting. The boardwalk, always love it. I, I, you know, we both like history. And I just think, you know, it's a place to go on vacation where there's also ghosts of old time and, and everything from them. Like, this is the pizzeria where the model Gigi had her um, her family had the pizzeria, too. Here's an old bank building from the 1920s. This building was in Boardwalk Empire. It's featured. It was reconstructed and featured in Boardwalk Empire as where the Nucky Thompson was running everything from. And here's the Casino Control Commission. And here's uh, um, the old Irish pub. Do you remember the Irish pub? We oh, were- yeah. Oh, I I remember the Irish <laughs> pub. It's, it's in fragments, uh, but I do remember it. Do we remember it better than the Stockton Library or as well as the Stockton Library? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I re- <laughs> definitely remember the Irish pub better than the Stockton <laughs> Library. And I remember the um, Stockton pub better than the Stockton the Library. The Stockton pub. Yeah, this little uh, the rat skeller. Uh, yeah, that was that was a great a great place to. Uh, you know, to, to catch a few after, after our studies. And Bruce, uh, I remember, is it, was it upper G wing where WLF LFR was and where, uh, yep. save. Yep. Stockton save actually was? volunteers for the environment. Yeah. You look at that school, it's a tiny school. I mean, it was it a couple thousand students, but, uh, maybe 4,000 students, but, uh, a lot of influence on environmental policy in the U S at that time. A very active group and the the radio station which was really cool unfortunately I, I don't believe it's this way anymore it's much more part of the curriculum now but it was mm-hmm. not any part of the curriculum it was no it was not do whatever show i you know <laughs> it was always on the verge of being shut down this is true constantly is true. on the verge <laughs> of being shut down by what some because of what someone played Right at, uh, at at midnight on a Friday or Saturday night, and, I ran uh, the uh, station for six months, and I I I am the only general manager of that station to give myself a time off the air as a penalty because we had some <laughs> kids from the high school on. They said some bad words, and I was like, "Well, I got to abide by the policy." And you know, I realized I'm better at the content than the administration end of things. Well, I got to say, I was appointed general manager uh, for it was like, we're going to appoint someone or we're going to shut it down. And I was appointed for three days and I I couldn't do it. I I just couldn't do it. I was not at that point in my life. I did not have the skills to uh, to do. That was quite a job. Lori, Lori McCardle was the. Oh, she was. She was the best. Everybody was. Oh, we had Adam Pock, the sheriff. And now he's been on Big Brother. He was yes, on he Big has. Brother in 2011. Yes. He got yes. to the number. I recently watched it. He got to the number three spot. He was pretty good. He was pretty crafty, but he couldn't beat the politics there. So he was the sheriff. I was. Uh, I did my big hunk of Elvis, and I was called the colonel at, at times. And uh, yes. so I go to Hoboken, and there's Adam Pock on a bus 
And I'm just like, Sheriff. And he's like, Colonel, <laughs> Sheriff, Colonel. And the people on this bus are like, the hell is up with these guys, you know? Oh, man. So good times. Good times. I also remember um, Bill Gross. I don't know if he's. Oh, yes, I do. Guy. Yeah. We I went on his show. And so back in that day, this is like under the file it under WLFR stories. So it might be interesting to the listener that, uh, you know, old college radio. So we had these records that would be the interview. So like, you know, it wasn't like you had all this digital stuff where you could do you could relay an interview by a famous person. They would send a vinyl record with the person's answers. And then you put the needle down at the right time as you're asking the question on the mic. And so this was Bernie Taupin, who was um, Elton yes. John's writer. And so <laughs> Bill Crows would be like, how um, how do you write your songs? Oh, my songs come from this inspiration and that. How do you get along with Elton? Oh, Elton and I really get along famously or whatever. And then Bill Gross would be like, oh, talking about that song. Well, and he would just throw in this stuff. And it's the kind of stuff that I think in a modern college, they would just kick you off the air. But there you could pretty much do within reason any kind of show you wanted. It was the heyday of college radio. And it was the heyday of left of the dial. Yeah. And it set us up well. It is still on. It's a little more commercial now, but it is still college run, still student student run. Let's let's put it that way with faculty help. And it's um, um, gives people an education, you know, with we got an education doing it. I love college radio. I think for podcasters, obviously for me, as soon as I saw this podcasting thing, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to jump on this. It, it gave me an education in something that could only be an outlet for in podcasting. Um I tried doing a little country station out in West Jersey and it was just, you know, didn't pay enough. And you guys started your podcast with Ben Sawyer, who everybody likes on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, one of our favorite guests, um, like speaks Russian and is brilliant. <laughs> he is brilliant, <laughs> for sure. I can't have him on, too. I don't know how you handle it. He makes me look stupid. Oh, uh, I know. No, but, but, you know, but we have, you know, I think that Ben and I have different... um because we have different skill sets, uh, it, it works. But Ben is so organized and yeah. he can take a topic and he can give you this 30,000 foot view of a question or a topic mm -hmm. and that I never even saw. Like when I was doing my research, I didn't even see the the thing, the question he sees. You know what I'm saying? Well, I like the episodes. I like all the episodes on, on Road to Now. I do. It does. It's like everything else. I got to catch up. And I'm, people do that with my show. Uh, but I'm always catching up. But I love the ones where it's you and Ben talking or sometimes with you and one of the Avid brothers. But um, I generally like when it's you and Ben talking. And there was one we had this discussion on Marxism that I thought was great and you had a different perspective and he was right. explaining his and, yeah. and it, and you got a good, neither is a committed Marxist for Marxist from what I could hear. You're just talking about it. Yeah. I don't know if anyone, if you're listening to this show and you're not signed up to road to now, I mean, obviously go do that. You can do it on your phone. These please days. do that. Please do that. Yeah. Be a bit. Ben will say, um, you know, let, well, why don't we do a, a you and I episode this week? And I, I'm like, oh, God, what are we going to talk about? 
And, and uh, you know, because having a guest can just make it so much easier because you have a direction, you know, you ha- you mm-hmm. know the direction you're going in. And sometimes it can be a little haphazard to do a show, not on the fly, but, you know, okay, let's, you and I do this and we'll talk about X, Y, and Z. And anyway, the, but people love, and I'm always skeptical, but then people say, man, we love the shows where it's it's you and Ben talking. And so- you know, like I say, Ben, uh, he he sees things that I can't see, and I, I guess that's why uh, we're a good team. Um, what's a recent show that you really would highlight or was really exciting for you? Yeah, we just did a show that we released this week uh, with um, about the Florida education standards, mm-hmm. and we had historian Andrew Polk and. Anna Goni Lesson, who is a reporter for the USA Today, talking about what is happening with education standards, specifically in Florida. So uh, Miss Lesson is an incredible reporter for the USA Today, and she, she's been covering all of these, be it the AP Psychology, be it the AP African American Studies, or um, book banning, you know, all these all this stuff that is mm-hmm. happening in Florida, she's covering that beat. So she gave us a really good on the ground perspective. And then Andrew Polk, who's a colleague of Ben's at Middle Tennessee State University, gave us the perspective of how do you develop uh, educational standards at the state level uh, for public schools and uh, what all this may mean for learning history, for kids learning history in the years to come. So Really, uh, one of my favorite episodes. It's always great to get a couple different perspectives in one episode, and I think we achieved that. That's great. Well, check it out, everybody. Check it out because that's a live issue. I haven't covered it enough. Um, the, the debates on education, uh, Ron DeSantis and and Trump, but but these days, more Ron DeSantis moves so quickly with issues in the way that Trump used to that uh, it's hard to cover everything with uh, his history. Yeah. I, I think. Glenn Youngkin, that that's he, I think he's the guy who made this the the Republican issue because that's what he ran on in his gubernatorial race against uh, Ter- Terry McAuliffe. Yeah, here as we were in the pandemic, it was an off year gubernatorial election in what is now largely believed to be Blue Virginia. Right. And Youngkin uses the uh, parents' rights and education as his main issue and it's we're coming out of the there this is rooted in the mask mandates and closing down the schools that's where i think this the genesis of this issue is and it's just it's it was kind of uh it's the honey hole for for the gop and so they've they've expanded it it's funny um yeah it's funny you bring that up i mean to get in 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 terms of political strategy i am a guest they are not running glenn yunkin oh um, sure or brian he kemp has the formula brian kemp might be too much of a rhino in those circles for him to get republican support oh he the democrats in georgia would probably vote for him as they did when he ran he's very popular yeah. Right. but but uh i think that yunkin in particular has the formula He's got the the snake bite antidote um, to uh, to and that is exactly what you said. In other words, sure, we take a look at a state and it looks blue, but within there, 
there's a lot of shallow support. So if I just come up with a very nice kind of, and I don't go full, like angry, you know, that's the Reagan lesson. Anytime when you're angry, you could still win elections, but you're winning by 50.5%. When right. you're um, when you're optimistic, you're winning elections. And they. I don't think that playbook's available. I'm just surprised that uh, maybe he's a VP candidate. The um, Republican program in a fleece jacket is yes. <laughs> deadly politically um deadly now that sounds biased and it's a little biased but it but it's um um i'm really speaking in political terms that's a very strong candidate i'm surprised they're not using it more desantis to me quickly i'm just gonna say it he's the dukakis of the republicans so far he does not have it he does not look good on video he has a couple of policies that'll you know and and the, and his wife the the bring casey desantis out there of course but that's not going to bring you through you know some okay you got some political issues that are good weapons but um and dukakis had it in 88 on reagan incompetence and so many people have been indicted but you don't have that retail politics no he he does not have he is not the uh he doesn't have the skills i I just love the clip in iowa of him with the little girl with the snow cone right you know and he's like hey is that a is that a slushy and she's like hey he's like a lot of sugar in that you know the guy just (laughs) he just doesn't have the retail politics well he's i think that uh you know i'll put my political prognosticator hat on right now if nothing changes and if he doesn't change up things you get to iowa and iowa is a great decision maker i believe them woe to the democrats for abandoning Iowa, it's, it is it, it it has serves an important role. I mean, I know they still have a caucus in Iowa, but Democrats should have honored that state's place being just first. Maybe it's a even if it's three hours first, just make it. But in any case, Republicans still have it first. Caucus is different from uh, primary. So in a caucus, if people start running scared, they they physically leave the group in whatever high school in Iowa they're in and join the other. So I think if DeSantis keeps running, you're running this possibility of um, the the DeSantis voters running scared for someone like a Christie or some other force. Well, yeah, I think Tim Scott in Iowa, I would watch him. Tim Scott definitely could could work. Uh, Iowa's good at picking. You don't have to have a super amount of money. You don't have to have um, a big name. Uh, You can be a quirky kind of third candidate and Iowans will bring you up. Lately, their influence hasn't been that as strong as it used to be. And that's my counter to, I realize why Democrats moved it, but my counter would be that it's not like they rule everything. It's just a little introduction to the country. Here's what Iowa thinks. We're the, we're the wine tasters. I could see Trump losing Iowa and losing New Hampshire, but still easily capturing the nomination like Biden did. Yeah, you can do that now. Yeah, you can do that now. You don't need to win um, Iowa and New Hampshire anymore. It kind of starts in uh, 92. So uh, Clinton, well, first of all, Iowa just was a non-contest in 92. It was written off by everyone because Harkin was running. Mm -hmm. Harkin was very popular in Iowa. And then in New Hampshire, Songus is running. So even though Clinton loses, he's able to say, come back, kid. I'm the comeback kid. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, um, 
I think that you're absolutely right. Uh, but I, I am surprised not to see a Youngkin. I think, you know, Youngkin's victory, first of all, some of it's just this, um, a very normal reaction in Virginia. Virginia's off year, so is New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Murphy had a tough race in New mm-hmm. Jersey. Usually it goes somewhat opposite trend. It doesn't mean sure uh, from the presidential the year before in these. Well, this is how Christie gets in, right? Mm. Christie got in in uh, in 2010. So yes, right after Obama and Scott uh, Brown wins the Senate seat. You have these reaction elections that are in often going to be. You could take New Jersey all the way back. You have Florio after Reagan. Um, uh, well, no, it's actually Keene, but but Florio runs really close. And then Florio after Bush wins in 1988, Florio Democrat wins in New Jersey. Then after Clinton wins, Whitman wins, the Republican wins in New Jersey. Then after Bush wins, McGreevy wins, the Democrat wins in New Jersey. So New Jersey has this real off and on. Another part of it is this whole like, what is blue and what is red? Is something a blue county? Is it a set of uh, issues on parchment that they all agree to? No, it's a feeling. It's a it's feeling, a feeling. candidates. It's a don't, you know, I want to be independent. I'm afraid of this. I'm, I want more of this. I want more of that. You know, all of that, that North uh, Virginia is, uh, is just like Arlington and, and a couple of counties. I mean, it can't totally carry, but well, we went on a so, Well, here. well, we're real quick, Bruce. <laughs> uh, 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 let's, let's button this section up of the conversation <laughs> with a, with a reminiscence. We started with a Jersey, Reminiscence, uh, yes. a Stockton yes. reminiscence. Let's let's go back. Okay. Um, was that that was Floria Whitman in the early nineties, right? Yeah. In okay, so my introduction to politics mm-hmm. was pulling a flyer, you know, to working in politics. Like the only time I ever worked in politics, I pulled a flyer off of a one of the the billboards at Stockton, and it was uh, seventy five bucks to work. Uh, get out the get out the vote uh, for Florio, <laughs> yeah. and it was in his headquarters. the The precinct or whatever the headquarters I worked in was in Pleasantville, in down on Main Street, and I had a seventy two Chevy Impala. So I'm going there to make seventy five bucks that I can spend at Louis or the <laughs> you know Stockton Pub. Oh, later. good old Louis, good old Louis. <laughs> so, but I have a seventy two Chevy Impala which could fit easily eight people if not 10 and so we they say you're driving you'll get an extra 50 bucks to drive and we go through these neighborhoods of northfield knocking Mm -hmm. on doors on election day all day long and then we go to the campaign headquarters at night and we see our candidate lose and it was a it was just a tempting, I was, you know, I'm in the communications. I'm, I'm going radio is my direction here. Uh, communications, right. Working communications in a campaign. And so anyway, I was, that was a moment of, of uh, a time for choosing, but I was so tempted after that experience to, uh, to work on campaigns. Yeah. yeah there's no doubt that, um, you know, even with everything going on the anger and in, in, in politics today, I mean, it's still exciting to, to work on campaigns. Um, there was a guy, I mean, former boxer, South Jersey, which is in New Jersey. You know, it's rare for a governor to come from South Jersey. Especially a Democrat. Especially Democrat, because it's not where the population is. But he came from the Camden area. And um, 
you know, just to, you talk about communications, just a poor communicator. And that's really what it was. This program really wasn't bad, but it came out raising taxes. And we had one of the, in New Jersey, one of the kind of first of the sort of pre-Perot campaigns. It was hands across New Jersey, where it was an anti-tax raising group that got a lot of attention were not really necessarily associated with either party, but just against the tax increase. And it really started some of those movements that you saw with Perot. So we saw some of that in in New Jersey. I'll find a way to segue this into John Quincy Adams. So a scattered political environment where there's people of all sorts of different parties and different feelings. And um, you recently concluded a podcast series uh, which I hope if everyone hasn't listened, they will listen, called Founding Son, about John Quincy Adams. Well, Bruce, we could also say that Hands Across New Jersey was a populist movement mm-hmm. and uh, that that was that was uh, just um, just a copy of or a uh, a reflection of these populist waves that our country has experienced. And in 1824, when Adams wins the presidency, he is up against a populist wave that will ultimately make him a failed one-term president. Why did I make founding son John Quincy's America? I made it because I am just intrigued by mid-19th century American politics. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the period between the Revolution and the Civil War, specifically the 18. 18- 20s 30s 40s and 50s are just a time in america that we don't talk about enough and it's a time where um you know the civil war didn't just fall upon us it didn't just happen it was uh, the result of decades and decades of strife and arguing and debating and 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 uh, band-aids on on the slave issue it was the slave issue coming to the fore that we we just it was our original sin when the constitution's drafted and it's something that we just couldn't reconcile and it it ultimately like like all like all issues in relationships that are are just you know kept under the surface at some point they boil over and so adams here he's the He's the son of uh, John Adams, founding father, second president of the United States, and he becomes the sixth president uh, of the United States himself at the end of a controversial um, election that was ultimately decided in the House of Representatives. So here he is, a minority president from from day one. The way it's decided, of course, um, if there's not a majority in the Electoral College, it goes to the House of Representatives to pick the president. So there, there, so the way the, the way the Constitution's written or the way the amendment's written, I guess, is that the the top three vote getters mm-hmm. go to the election in the House. In the House, each state delegation gets one vote. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So this is what the Trump uh, team wanted to do in 2020. They wanted to to on January 6th they wanted the certification to not happen mm -hmm. if it doesn't happen on January 6th and there's no resolution you got to go to the house if Trump if each state delegation had one vote uh on you know in January they would have tilted towards Trump because more Republicans uh had the majority in delegations than Democrats so what happens in 1824 is Henry Clay is the fourth highest vote getter he's out of the running for the 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 vote that's going to take place in the house of representatives so he becomes president maker he is the guy who can use his support to sway in the direction of really the two top candidates john quincy adams the establishment the boston brahmin if you will the uh the elitist or the populist war hero, Andrew Jackson. Or to use Henry Clay's description, the backwoods Napoleon. I mean, so there's, there's, uh, he's a budding, he's a hero, definitely of the, of the New Orleans battle. There's some controversy with him over his actions in Florida, where he, you know, arrested British citizens and took Spanish forts, kind of had a little MacArthur. Yeah, Monroe is looking to possibly even censure him for for those actions. Right. But for John Quincy Adams, who stands up for who who is in the he's, the, of course, the secretary of state in the Monroe administration. And when all this is going on, Clay and uh, John C. Calhoun, who was uh, the Monroe's he was in Monroe's cabinet war secretary. I think so. Clay and Calhoun want to uh, want to you know, uh, censure Jackson and it's Adams who, who stands up for him. And it's really ironic that come 1824, 
it's between Adams and Jackson and Clay, who hates Jackson with a passion and agrees with Adams policies. Clay wanted something that was known as the American system, which to put it in our the parlance of our times, infrastructure. Infrastructure. And Adams believed in that, the federal government funding infrastructure projects around the country that will bring the country together and uh, promote uh, trade and commerce amongst the states. So, uh, of course, Clay is going to support Jackson, right? Of course, he will lobby for Jackson. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes all the sense in the world. Plus, politically, I mean, someone like Clay who made his... Um, his bread and butter in politics in 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 the the a certain way the the congressional way doesn't want some upstart coming he was in. speaker of the house prior yeah. to this right he, he was he was a regular regular politician a good a good one of course adams appoints clay as secretary of state and now mm. the was there a quid have... pro quo bruce carlson <laughs> was this a corrupt bargain you know um I take the word corrupt out of it and I'd say it's certainly a bargain. I mean, there's just no way around it. A deal like that doesn't happen even in modern times, you know, where maybe we're looking at it with our modern hindsight, but he's, he's certainly allied himself with the Adams administration. I mean, I think, of course, the thing to think about Secretary of State is what is it at that time? And it's you don't get the presidency from the vice presidency. You get the presidency from the Secretary of State position. That had been Madison. That had been Monroe. Now Quincy Adams. Jefferson at one point. Jefferson. And then so if you get that spot, you're going to be president soon. It gives him the executive experience that Clay wants. So you take the word corrupt out of it, which then gets into which turns a normal Washington arrangement, which I'm sure Jackson and allies were doing plenty of that out there into something that's a conspiracy theory. So often in our politics then and now. So immediately after Adams wins the vote in the house, uh, Jacksonian or at this point, not yet. We're not yet in the Jackson. We're on the edge of the Jacksonian period here. Um, but the Jackson newspapers, because every, would you agree with this, Bruce? At that point, every newspaper was partisan. Yeah, you had, um, you could be moderate partisan. Um, you had certain Whig papers, um, well, they weren't Whigs yet. Um, you had certain papers in Washington that might be a little more, um, you know, some people would go very heavy than others, but every paper, the only way to get a, a paper started at the time is subscriptions and subscriptions and also to be sponsored by a party and the people running the papers, you know, your Thurlow Weeds and, and Horace Greeley's are partisans themselves. Right. So, so these immediately, you know, Adams is president. He, or he's, you know, about to be president. He nominates uh, Clay as secretary of state. And these Jackson, these papers favoring Jackson say, this is a corrupt bargain, that it is a stolen election here 200 years ago, 1824, 200 years ago, it's a stolen election. And the campaign for 1828 begins before uh, Adams even takes the oath. And that's a little new. Yeah. And so J- Jackson's supporters in the House and even, you know, a lot of Adams support. Like, nobody supported Adams. Adams' own party didn't support him. You know, Adams gave in his first annual address to Congress. 
he says he 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 write he he gives this statement and again it was written at the time it wasn't a speech like we think of the uh the um state of the union it wasn't like that and he says that um he's laying out this this program for to expand the federal government and 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 to support uh infrastructure projects in the state you know by tax money taxpayer money with taxpayer money he's he's uh promoting a naval academy he's mm-hmm. promoting the building of telescopes to for scientific research what he called lighthouses in the sky he says hey they're doing it in europe are we going to be are we going to be palsied by the will of our constituents and not do it here and so what he's saying and that old winning american argument they're doing it in europe right and we're, and in the parlance of our times once again it's basically said are we gonna you know let a basket of deplorables who don't want to pay taxes tell us what we need to do because we're obviously we're in we're the smartest people in the country you know that's what it <laughs> sounded like and in, uh, knowing Adams, that's what he meant. And right. uh, it, again, like uh, Ron DeSantis with the, hey, kid, there's a lot of sugar in that. You know, <laughs> slushy. It's like it was kind of that he didn't have the, at this point in his life and career, Adams didn't have that human common touch. Jackson did and people looked at Jackson and they said, you know, although Jackson was very wealthy, but they still said, hey, this guy's from the, he was, you know, from the South, but he's from North Carolina and he, uh, he makes his, he makes his wealth in Nashville, Tennessee. And he's a man of the West. He's a man, you know, the country was moving West. It was, and, and these, the new voters that were gaining the, the suffrage at the time, they were westerners and 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 southerners and they looked at jackson and said he's the he's like me he's he pulled himself up from his bootstraps he wasn't this rich kid from boston this elitist and uh that doomed adams was just doomed he was doomed like jimmy carter was doomed i mean he was just doomed from the from the start and he and he didn't do himself any favors right he didn't and he didn't have a constituency there was um and it was a permanent campaign, which really wasn't part of the uh, equation in the past. Well, I suppose you could say during the Washington administration, you start a bit of that with Jefferson and Madison building their sure. opposition. You have this kind of, yeah, you're just coming in with permanent opposition. Uh, I'm about to do uh, Carter 1977. I can plug uh, upcoming. Please. It's coming out in September. And one of the points we make is when he looked at that dome, the Capitol dome, most of those people, Democrat or Republican, didn't want him in that chair. They had wanted Humphrey or Scoop Jackson or Brown or somebody else. He just happened to win all the most of the primaries. And so. largely, <laughs> and largely, Carter, like Adams, like John Quincy Adams before him, and like John Adams, didn't want to play politics. Like at, yeah. John Quincy Adams wouldn't hand out the patronage. He's like, no, if a Jacksonian is in this, if a supporter of Jackson is in this job, and this this happened with, I think maybe the the collector of um you know what was that position that was very the poor collector in new york would be the big one poor collector yeah and he's like well you know the guy's done a yeah sure he supports jackson but mm-hmm. he's doing a good job i have no reason to replace him and because because 
Adams wouldn't play that game. Philip Hone, who at one point was the the mayor of New York, would say um, Adams's refusal to play to play party politics has lost him the support of all the parties. Yeah. You know, he, he he just he just wouldn't he just refused to do it because he thought that playing politics was beneath the office. And really playing politics today is how you obtain the office and how you maintain the office. And it's a skill. It's very complex. All of these relationships uh, and also who moved from the legislative into the executive, your best ally in the legislative, Henry Clay, who could get things done now he's sitting there in an administration that's not working adams also proposes a lot of things and this is now we're too early in american history probably for this to be seen as a bad but now we know and again the carter example like a lot of goals early on in administration that's really tough yeah carter another similarity to and i did some writing i'd hope to write an op-ed comparing carter and adams so i've done Mm -hmm. thinking about this i've done i wrote it just not it's just not very good but but um but but they both worked so hard right like carter and adams were both hands-on they were both very hands-on and they both would spend hours and hours working on policy and they felt like they were the most qualified people in the room at all times. And part of being a president is delegating that. And uh, probably Reagan did that much better than Carter, ultimately. Well, it certainly delegated better, yeah. I mean, Carter would read the defense appropriations. Now, I think it led <laughs> to some good things. He had, you right. know, he would sit there and read the detail and then yes. realize that, you know, we have to change our conventional strategy yes yes and uh and it really moved uh working with harold brown and he changed american defense and i imagine adams doing things like that i mean suggesting a national uh, observatory the national university is really washington's kind of dying wish and he even bought land for it it's now there is a george washington university but it's it's not public um and never you never had that american uh, true American university, possibly because the conspiratorial forces we talked about earlier. Yeah, for sure. And and you can look back on Adams, what he proposed, and and then some of the things that we have, like a naval academy and like government funded infrastructure, which he was, uh, you know, completely ahead of his time. But he wasn't the best messenger for that, and the times weren't ready for that. And so, John Quincy Adams. His presidency, you know, if that's all he had, um, there might be very, you're going to talk about any president at some point, but there might be very little reason to discuss this one term. He would be like Buchanan or or he'd be like um, uh, Harding or he'd be, well, he wasn't as controversial as Harding was, but, um, you know, or as corrupt, but, or allegedly, or in reality (laughs) um but but yeah and there's a lot of people lose when people learn about presidents they lose a lot of them right like they can't remember uh a benjamin harrison from a william henry harrison from a from a chester a arthur to a grover cleveland to a you know he would be one of these like lost and he that's why i made this because i feel like he's been lost Mm -hmm. but like jimmy carter again carter has one term 
And but we remember him fondly and because of his post-presidency, right? Working for world peace and uh working with uh Habitat for Humanity and uh negotiating uh you know uh overseeing elections in 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 uh, fledgling democracies he has become he, carter won the nobel right he won the nobel peace prize he's he's a beloved american president for many by many even though he was a one term president and his presidency could be looked at as not being successful adams was a failed one term president but what Adams does after he leaves office is he goes into the House of Representatives and no other former president does that. Many presidents were in the House before they were president, right? but none go into the House post-presidency. Now, there is um, Andrew Johnson after he was impeached and president he goes into the senate but it's for five months and he dies right so he doesn't really get to re because he was a senator prior to being vice president for abraham lincoln and then he's president and then he but adams he serves for 17 years in the house of representatives and while he's there 17 years in the house of representatives and it's in the house that adams does something at the time that is uh no one wants to have happen he brings the issue of slavery which is this this blistering wound calloused under the skin of the constitution and he basically let's call it let's try a different metaphor let's call it a boil right and adams comes into the house and he lances the boil of slavery to where it becomes the issue that they are dealing with in con- every issue that is that arises between 1830 and when he dies in 1848 which in itself is is historic but be it nullification be it the issue over the bank be it texas the annexation of texas every issue that comes up at the bottom of it below the surface it's it's slavery there's a tension over the mm-hmm. slave issue Adams, and we can talk about how he did this, but he is the guy who brings it out in the open and says, we got to talk about this. Yeah, well, I mean, because the Congress had a had a gag rule. And the gag rule was, which was passed in May of 1836, is essentially an anti-John Quincy Adams rule. <laughs> and if you, I don't know if you can imagine these days a legislator being gagged. You know, to just have an issue that's so far we just cannot talk about it, but it, it and that is happening today, right? It happened in Tennessee. It happens in it happened in Montana mm-hmm. recently, but so how did the gag rule come about? Okay, so when Adams enters the House in 1831, and at the time you have this uh, this abolitionist movement, and the abolitionist movement was the anti-slavery movement. And it had gone through some changes over the years, and the new the new form of it they they were beginning to, to come up with this idea like, hey, we can't end slavery in the South, but maybe 
we can end slavery in the District of Columbia, and maybe we can end it in the territories, okay? Because the states have their states' rights, and the Constitution protects states' rights to property. And But the Congress has control over what happens in Washington, D.C. There's a, a sitting committee in the House, the Committee on Washington, D.C. I think there's one in the Senate as well. And then there's the territories. So let's let's send petitions to Congress because <clears throat> the First Amendment enshrines a citizen's right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And Bruce, you probably know this, but at the beginning of, in the early 19th century, at the beginning of every session of Congress for two weeks, one hour a day, congressmen from every state could present petitions and read them on the House floor. It, that was how people, that was how people uh, petitioned their government. Mm -hmm. And so your congressman from uh, New Jersey, maybe his last name was Freelinghausen. I don't know. Right. Wouldn't shock. Right. <laughs> Wouldn't shock. <laughs> right now. He would say, uh, I have a petition, Bruce Carlson from uh, whatever <laughs> county he lives in these days. And he wants uh, there's uh, uh, potholes in his uh, he wants the government to, to fix the potholes. I don't know what whatever it was. That was how you let the government know that you you wanted uh, change and you how you asked for new laws as a citizen. And, and they so, read it into the record. And they read into, and maybe they'll say, this goes to the committee on such mm -hmm, and such. Mm -hmm. This will send this to the committee on this and that, right? Well, abolitionists began to send these petitions to the Congress for the ending of slavery in the District of Columbia. And Adams, on the first day he's in the House, he reads 15 of them. And he says, you know, I don't agree with what they're asking here. I don't know that we can really do this uh, constitutionally, but but I'm but this is what these citizens they are praying these 15 ladies from this town in Massachusetts or these Quakers in Pennsylvania, they're praying for an end to slavery, the slave trade in the District of Columbia. And no one pays too much attention to it. But what happens over the next five years is these things begin to come in by the wagon load to where there's thousands and thousands coming in a month, these petitions against slavery. And uh, at one point, um, the book, Joshua Gidding, Levitt, William Levitt, the abolitionist William Levitt, he writes that he was walking down the hallways of Congress and they were stacked up on either side, <laughs> feet high. And so Adams begins to read these things and other Northern congressmen begin to read these things. And, and you know, you, you have Nat Turner's rebellion, you have these slave revolts, Nat Turner's rebellion. And, you know, Southern politicians are starting to get a little sick and tired of hearing slavery, you know, their peculiar institution being trashed on the floor of the house, the people's house. House of Representatives, and you're just like talking down to my lifestyle and my my uh, my labor force, and you know you're you're starting to really they started to really get kind of sick of it, especially the guys from South Carolina, guys like John Henry Hammond and uh, Pinckney, and uh, in the Senate you had John C. Calhoun. He 
And there's arguments. I mean, there's hypocrisy to some extent. They'll make sure. that case because the North is getting cotton from them. Sure. The North is getting materials, molasses. They're getting other things from hey, them. Hey, and the North is, they're making the slave clothes and mm-hmm. they're making the implements of the farming uh, tools. So, yeah, sure. The city of uh, Newark, New Jersey, it's major steel customers. We're all South. And Adams call Adams calls us out. He calls yeah. us out. He calls yeah. us out on the floor. But um, something happens where a congressman, you know, reads a petition and then uh, a Hammond, John Henry Hammond from South Carolina says, hey, um, I moved to table this petition. And that means just kind of like he says, I, you know, I move that we we table them all before we read them. We don't print them. We don't read them out loud. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about them these petitions come and they're just basically uh what adams will say is they go to the vault of the capulets <laughs> they go off to die and adams is like where he's not he doesn't he does not agree with abolitionists they're radicals that he doesn't agree with their tactics he doesn't think that he hates slavery he thinks it's morally reprehensible but he uh he doesn't really see what congress can do about it you know but when Southern congressmen begin to say, we don't, we're not even going to read these things. He says, you're taking away people's freedom of speech. If the first amendment says that you have, we have a right to freedom of press, freedom of religion. We have a right to petition our government for a redress of grievances. Now you're messing with the constitution. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. No, 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 no. And this is where he gets involved in the fight. And this is what precipitates the passing of the gag rule. And once the gag rule is enacted, where you can't mention slavery on the floor of the House of Representatives from 1836 to 1842, 43, it's as Bruce, as we said in our generation, we would say it's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> and and this makes Adams an activist. And that is the story that we tell in Founding Son. Awesome. I love it. And I think that, you know, he's uh I I read I know a book that you like. I have it right here, Mr. Sean Wilentz. Oh the, uh this yes, is my- by the way, Rise of American Democracy. Yes, mine um, is sitting in the living room in my reading chair. Uh, one of the, um, uh, I call Rise of the American Democracy one of the founding books of my history computer after politics. It was like one of my original go-to, along with John Vile, who is a who is or was a professor at uh, Middle State, along with um, with Ben Sawyer there, uh, constitutional professor, and Stanley Belkins, a couple of, couple of little Gordon Wood, and those were my go-to to, to get the podcast started. His book is so rich um, that um, 
I know that it was a swear. Actually, he he did speak on your podcast. He, he is. He you know, I I call and I had the honor of having he is one of the experts in this series, the six episode series, Founding Son. And um he for me is the Bob Dylan of historians. And oh, I got to tell absolutely. him that. And uh uh he, you know, he, he's written about Bob, he's actually written a book about Bob Dylan. Yeah, rich uh 92 verse songs, absolutely. Yes, yes. But yeah, that the rise of American democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln. I am currently working on what I hope will be a sequel to Founding Son. And I'm back in I'm back in Rise of American Democracy because it's the well. I told someone yesterday, I'm like, this is the book you need to read because it is the well for this period of history. And you I just keep going back to the well and mine, like yours, is tattered and dog eared and you know, just kind of barely holding it together. Um it yeah, is just a off. sensational book. I tell everyone it is it is the the best book. And you know, a credit to his a lot of historians don't have this. Can you write? You can research, right? But can you engage a reader with your writing, and can you bring that time alive? And that's what a skill that Willens has. I mean, it should. That many don't. If you know, we live in a political time. Sometimes we pull our hair out. Sometimes we hate it. We all have our politics. There's people listening to my show that want to see Trump again. There's people listening to my show that want to see Biden again. There's people shaking their head is why these are the two choices and they want someone (laughs) else. There's all kinds of politics. We should at least the positive of all of this is we know that um, politics is always a scene in motion in american history to think that there's just like two choices and this and no there's all of these groups and burn you know huskers and oh man new york and new york city new york state (laughs) politics in the 19th century man the loco focos against the barn burners oh man and that's walens's uh wheelhouse yeah that you know those groups and so so he really gets into all that stuff but oh man he really brings it alive bruce that book taught me that was when I had this the thought of the good, the bad, the ugly of American history. It's not you know? all, I mean, they're not all good. I mean, some of these people, some of the people opposing so I'm I can plug again that I'm working on please usually will hey, it's book. your show, please. Oh, yeah, that's oh, right. Hey, Bruce, I keep forgetting. Bruce, uh, what are you working on these days? <laughs> Tell us about it. There you go. I love having a podcaster on because you can just reverse roll. Um I am working on a Zachary Taylor. It's going to be uh, Zachary is Ready, at least a three-parter. And uh, it is going to be a narrative-ish history of these times, but a little later. And um, uh, Sean Willens, definitely that book, definitely one of one of many sources. It's a good starting point. You read something, and then you're like, oh, what, what's that? Let me get more into it. Yes. Um, and layers, uh, right? These things, when we put these things together, these mm-hmm. are layers. We're layering. Well, I will admit, when I first started my history, can beat up your politics, it used to be uh, I would just tell a story and it would be this happened and then that happened. And something like looking at the notes of uh, Sean Wilentz and rereading and going into journal, that didn't, uh, I would, you know, until we get to about. About the time I, I I appeared on you guys' show in 2016, then started getting more complex, richer, a little bit more pulling things out. Just because you know you're finding that there are these complexities, and just because one person, one historian says something, that doesn't mean it's necessarily true. There's always right in, in all our communications. There's an 
there's fact and interpretation mixed together. God, what was I reading about the other day? And like, okay, Dred Scott, when mm-hmm. Buchanan's inaugurated, mm-hmm. he goes up to taunt like Tawny is uh, Roger B. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Taney. And he's about to administer the oath to James Buchanan. And there's this uh, Supreme Court case that is pending. The nation is on pins and needles waiting for the results. And some say there's the two men are, are seen having a conversation before Buchanan takes the oath. And, and then I think in the speech, Buchanan kind of references the Dred Scott and what's about, well, I think something's going to happen and it's going to fix the slavery thing. You know, Zachary Taylor, the compromise of 1850, you know, it's another like, okay, Missouri compromise. I think we fixed the slavery thing. I think we're good now. And then compromise of 1850 is like, "Ah, you know what? This is the one that's going to fix it all. Dred Scott, 1858, 1857, 1857. It's like, well, this Supreme Court, they're going to rule on this and it's just going to, we're going to be good after that, you know, and each compromise makes things worse. It makes things certainly makes makes things worse. And anyway, but uh, oh, the whole Tanny and Buchanan thing, we still don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. That shows up in the Lincoln Douglas debates where Douglas is like, you're a stupid conspiracy. Well, he doesn't say it this way. You're a stupid conspiracy monger because you, but certainly don't involve me in the conspiracy. Douglas says, right. Well, Lynn says, uh, well, Lynn says that mm -hmm. um, Buchanan knew he, they had been in, they had, he had been in contact, not just with uh, Taney, but, but with another Supreme court justice from Pennsylvania, from his home state, Greer Mm -hmm. named Greer. And Buchanan was in on the whole decision and they didn't, the court didn't have to just, they, they, and this is so echoing of our time right now, you have these Supreme court decisions and they don't need to be so narrow, but then they write a broad decision that changes a, a policy in the direction of the country. Same thing happens here. And there's conspiracy theories about you know, politicians being involved in the Supreme Court's decision and the Supreme Court making this decision for political purposes, which they did, which the, which they did. But then if you read different historical accounts and um, Alan Nevins and uh, Sean Wilentz and uh, there's another one I'm reading, uh, McPherson. Uh, battle cry of freedom. You you get you get like you know slightly. Or then maybe you read a biographer of say William Henry Seward, because Seward will call this out in a speech himself after the decisions read, and you and you realize, and you know what Seward calls for, reforming the court. Mm -hmm. And so these things we just kind of we see them uh, happening over and over and over again in American history and different historians uh, pull out different aspects. They highlight different aspects of the, of the, of these complex, you know, issues, these, 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 these things they play out like in our politics, you know, one day, uh, you know, DeSantis is, let's get off DeSantis uh, metaphors here, but, but like politics happens minute by minute, day by day, and then 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, people write books about these things that played out over slowly over long periods of time. And so different historians highlight different moments 
in the controversy for sure. Oh, the summaries, the summaries, and they make it so easy. I'm waiting for the 2012. It'll be like Obama coasted to election. Does anybody realize how scared those that campaign was? That there yeah. was came so close to Romney winning, even though in the end it didn't. But the way history's written is so far back, and and all of this stuff. I I I am waiting to see George W. Bush in history. I I believe with some time it'll be a lot less favorable. Um, I, I am waiting, you know, he may feel differently, but, uh, I, I see that coming uh, right now. He's coming in the middle of presidential ranking, but Hey, Hey Bruce, uh, speaking of Obama and Romney. Yeah. How about this, uh, debate with Candy Crowley, uh, where, um, Romney says, uh, Russia is our biggest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. adversary right now. And Obama says, Hey, Mitt, the 1980s called, they want their they want their foreign policy back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen. I mean, I don't. I <laughs> Obama made a, a a lot of errors and mistakes. I I often think, you know, while he's a amazing political and celebrity figure, you know, I think uh, Nancy Pelosi did some of the lifting in the beginning, and absolutely, uh, you know, there's all of this stuff going on there. But yeah, I don't think you know what a what a great um what a great prophecy there. Uh, and and Romney really did well in that first debate. But on topic, though, I, I I I'm reminded of this. I had Cindy Blumenthal on, and one of the things he said that really jogged me uh, about this time period and getting into John Quincy Adams' presidency and post presidency period is you have to remember, Bruce. He said we were one country, so you had the slave South and the North and the West, whatever it was going to be, the fighting out of, over there, we were one country, which means you couldn't, you know, it's all well and good to talk about the 14th and 15th Amendment, getting them passed, about all this kind of, uh, at that time, progressive, say, legislation getting passed, when states couldn't vote, couldn't block anything because they weren't let back into the Union yet, or right. their governments had been so destroyed, they had a different set of politics. But at that time, these people are still in South Carolina with its slave, um, got, you know, slave uh, power government, say, is in the union. It's part of the decision making. You can't separate. They're going to get into the federal government. If anything, South had a little a little edge until you get the run up to the Civil War. And so, yeah, there's all of these kind of politics. Um, Cindy Blumenthal and Sean Willans do a really good job. Uh, Blumenthal wrote a, wrote a bunch of Abraham Lincoln books. They do a really good job of showing how carefully like a figure like Douglas is balancing, like, even though people like Lincoln dislike him, some some people feel like he's great because he's taking on Buchanan at times. And Jefferson Davis doesn't, he's having a lot of trouble getting the nomination from Southerners and Democrats. So just this balancing act. And I think that's the thing to think about when John Quincy Adams comes with all his New England states voting for him. He got more states in that election, but he's crippled because of God, this kind of politics. Bruce, Bruce, I, 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 it's so hard for me to stay out of these rabbit holes. Uh, can we? <laughs> I, can I make one Douglas uh, comment before we go back to Adams? Sure, absolutely. So, Douglas. <laughs> He starts all this with the Kansas Nebraska Act, Absolutely. right? He ripped the guy rips the country apart. And then a couple of years later, when the when the pro-slavery Lecompton, you know, convention 
puts forth this constitution that's completely bunk and they that you know and this is a lot of backstory here that, that i guess this might be just for bruce and i and all of you out there who've studied kansas <laughs> Nebraska. but then you know when the kansas is about to pass this bunk constitution to join the union as a pro-slavery state douglas is like whoa 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 no no i don't support this at all i don't support this at all the popular sovereignty has not is not been uh, uh used here yeah. um so anyway not going appropriately because it wasn't appropriate oh. yeah i mean th- but you see in the i think how it relates if if <laughs> is it's one of those band-aids at least in his mind it's one of he his whole popular sovereignty which goes all the way back to lewis cast and and other democratic schemes in the in the west uh, this is how we'll solve it we'll just have the the squatters vote well you know that only that doesn't work when there's a, one group can get together and say this is our we voted and we you know it's it's hard policing those elections essentially it's just one of many band-aids during this time to right. try to solve this issue in a myriad com- complexity of ways i mean you take someone like a calhoun who's operating during this time he don't want to solve the issue he's no. like the best the best thing that can happen is we get out of this union we get our independence and That's we right. don't have to pay a price for it, you know. And um, whereas other people desperately, you know, a, a Rufus King, say, William Rufus King, they want to solve these issues, you know, even though he's from Alabama. They want Henry Clay. We want to get we want to solve these issues. Um, you have in the north, I suppose, uh, Webster, um, although he's 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 a mix. Um, yeah, he's a mix. He's so. um when I started reading about American history, he was one of these beloved figures. Mm-hmm. The more mm-hmm. I read about him, I don't see him that way. You know, Adam, get let's hear I can get us back to Adams. <laughs> Adams kept a journal from 1779 mm-hmm. until 1848. Mm-hmm. Adams, and I'm gonna just say that again, just for emphasis. Adams kept a journal from 1779 to 1848 this journal which is which was written in most days if he was going through a depressive he had some depressive periods in his life he didn't write when he was going through when he was very depressed but but he wrote mostly every day in that period and through that those years and that diary is become a resource for historians of the period. It is a pretty reliable resource, but also it's where Adams said what he really thought. And he would write about Webster, mm-hmm. you know, and clay and Calhoun. Mm-hmm. And just, he saw through their statements to, he saw their true ambitions. And Webster was one of these guys who was, it was a blowhard. He was, yeah, he was eloquent. He was, but it was more show than tell, I guess, is what, what Adams would kind of think of him. He was more of a, um, more worried about his image and more of a self promoter than, than someone who really cared about being a public servant, which is what Adams was at to his core. Adams, I believe was, was one of our nation's greatest public servants. Um, uh... And uh, if we if we take it, he does decide he turns a bit when he's in Congress to. Um, and I guess this is another complexity of politics at this time that we always have to think about. You keep hearing this term, the slave power. And so Lincoln uses it. He uses other terms as well, but he uses it. Uh, 
Thomas Hart Benton might you you would use something like this. Like even people who own slaves are using right. the term the slave power because they may own some slaves on their plantation, but they don't feel part of the slave power. And someone like a Webster might here or there attack the slave power or um or other speakers in New England particularly, uh not necessarily being anti-slavery. No. But against a system that's growing, that's taking power, that's reducing the power of the free worker. Uh, and and so you could kind of run this balance. And it appears like Adams did this a little bit, like he was speaking Ad- out against the slave power. You know, Adams called them the slaveocracy. Slaveocracy. That was right. his term for it. And yes, so once the gag rules passed in 1836, and this is actually when... Texas becomes a republic like the same week, mm-hmm. you know, within or within a, a few days of of the gag rule being passed, Texas becomes a republic. And so now you can't talk about slavery on the floor of the House of Representatives, but you can talk about Texas. And what's at the root of the debate over annexing Texas, but slavery. And yeah. so Adams knew every rule, every rule of order. In Congress, every rule in Congress, Adams was an expert. So he, what he does is, and we chronicle this in the series, I call it political jujitsu. <laughs> he would use the rules of the house in order to interject his disdain of slavery and fight about a fight about the gag rule. He would just, if they were, whatever they were debating, Adams was so well read so well, so deeply researched, so adept at the rules of order that he could manipulate the situation and the conversation to make other Southern politicians say things they didn't want to say. He could he could get them riled up and fired up. And sometimes he would be giving a speech and he would taunt Southerners and then they would be going off and kind of like showing their showing their hiney on the floor and he would sit down and he would laugh. He'd just be laughing because he completely manipulated the, the, the situation to his own, own will. He, he would play them like a fiddle, as we like to say, uh, <laughs> he played the slaveocracy like a fiddle in Congress. And I think, you know, um, uh, obviously the whole battle's over expansion because absent that expansion, the, if things stayed the same, you could see, you see the North, gaining more power and and as they would eventually do taking over but um figuring out you know how to knock out some of the the entrenchments and and taking over more so expansion's the goal but um listen uh we we i think that's the key moment um uh, of of adams is in terms of his fight against the slave power and the gag rule and Again, absent that, Agreed. he'd be kind of mediocre president, former, you know, treated with Spain. That's cool and everything. But, you know, we got Florida. Cool. You know, pretty good. DeSantis owes him a favor, speaking of DeSantis. But put that aside. Um, wouldn't be much to say, but it's his. It's this fight that really makes him an American character. And I know yeah. on your podcast, there's a lot more to get into about the, there is. the Amistad and everything else. But where do you where do you think you want to go from from here? Well, uh, 1850s, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I I have been uh, studying uh, William Henry Seward a lot, and I feel like he is 
He's a mentor. He's a mentee. Adams mm-hmm. was his mentor. He's close with Charles Francis Adams, mm-hmm. uh, Adams's son, who will play a role. Uh, and you know, Seward is a guy like like who you know this period of history. It's like we need the people that lived it to tell us the story of the times. And Adams was such a great vehicle to tell the story. He was a great, I like to say, tour guide mm-hmm. of the 1830s and 1840s. And I think Seward is is that guy for the 1850s. And then in, he becomes Lincoln's Secretary of State. But, you know, it was his nomination to lose in 1860. And um, there is a great, uh, I, I, I'll call it a scene that I've, I've uh, read and looking from uh, researching it from Charles Francis Adams uh, side and from Seward's side is like, you know, maybe this is a tease for the future, I hope. But uh, when Seward loses the Republican nomination to Abraham Lincoln on the third, uh, was it the third ballot? I don't remember what it was, but. Sounds right. Third. Sounds right. But when when he loses the nomination, uh, he's at home in his garden in Auburn, New York, when he gets the word. And he says, you know, it's, uh, it's time for retirement. It's, it's okay. It's okay. He wasn't upset. He didn't show it. He was maybe relieved. You know, he'd been in politics for decades. He was governor of New York for two terms, senator of New York. And, you know, he'd seen, like we say of Adams, he'd seen a lot of winters. <laughs> and it was okay but john quincy adams son who says you need to go campaign for this guy lincoln you need to go out and give speeches you need to we need to get him elected he needs to be elected this country needs him and so adams and seward and uh one of uh adams charles francis adams's sons go on this western tour they go all the way out to like wisconsin at the time and so this is 18 you know 60 and they give, I think Seward gives like 95 speeches mm-hmm. for, on Lincoln's behalf and helps get him elected. And then, of course, he'll play this incredible role in Lincoln's administration. And really, he keeps Britain and France out of the Civil War. I think it's a great choice. I think he just picked a great moment. It's funny. I I, I remember talking about that in our, in, in our 1860 cast in 2020 that we did and we talked about that moment where yeah he hurls himself into the campaign and so important in beating Stephen Douglas in the 1860 election and reducing Stephen Douglas um who was a threat still in Illinois and other places uh to, to have that western tour and have this enthusiastic also beating back a possible abolitionist challenge because Seward takes on some of those forces on Lincoln's left, if you will. Uh, yeah. So really important moment. That that is a, that's going to be a great one. I think you're 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 picking them right. Um, I'll take care of Zachary Taylor if you take William Seward. All right, I'll, deal <laughs> done and done. Bob, anything else that you want to highlight? Where can people find you? All that good stuff. Well, sure. Um, well, I mean, I'm on the social media <laughs> thing. I'm at Bob Crawford Base. Uh, if you want to find me on the 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 Devil's Playground, what's it called call this it? week? I don't even remember. I don't even know. It's <laughs> disgusting. But um, but more importantly, the road to now. Uh, the podcast is you can get it wherever you get your podcasts, as they say. And then we're on Sirius XM Potus channel on weekends. That's uh, one channel one twenty four. 
and we are on throughout the weekend. They play it like four or five times uh, throughout the weekend. So check us out the road to now. Uh, and we, we crank them out, you know, we, with summer, we, we put a lot of re-airs up, uh, this past summer. Everybody does, but, uh, we're back at it and we've got some Bruce. Have you, uh, I'm excited. And this is like, we haven't even recorded it yet, but have you seen this book yet coming out? Let's see. Gallop towards the sun. I have not. Yes. I'm so, I have to read this by Wednesday. So we're going to talk to Peter Stark next wednesday oh and this week i recorded yesterday an episode with um robert O'Hara jr formerly of the washington post investigative journalist who wrote a book about montgomery megs and the book's been out since 2016 but i've just i just met uh robert recently we've become friends and um again that's this time period like megs megs He's in charge of the capital, the renovation of the capital in the 1850s. The backdrop is the time period we've been discussing. Wow. And Megs becomes Lincoln's quartermaster. Uh, that will come out on Monday. And then we'll 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 interview Peter Stark next week. Uh, his book about William Henry Harrison in Tecumseh. And uh, on and on we go, Bruce. Exciting stuff. Everybody check out. Bob Crawford and his podcast, Founding Son. Got to check it out. You should have already. So I'm going to, uh, but but I'll give you another chance. <laughs> and then if, if you don't, you're a bad listener. <laughs> and uh, bad listener, bad listener. And also The Road to Now with Bob and Ben. Uh, Bob, good to see an old friend. Thanks for coming on. My history can beat up your politics. Oh, Bruce, I wish you and I could be at Louis uh, playing the jukebox <laughs> and drinking a beer, but those things don't exist anymore. So I think it turned into a condo or bread I, and breakfast or something. I like think that. it did. It's so great <laughs> to see you, my friend, always. All right. Same here. Uh, thank you. And we really want to thank Bob Crawford for coming on. Check out his podcast, Founding Son. Check out The Road to Now. Um, check out the Avid Brothers, all of that good stuff. Thanks, Bob. And thank you for listening. Yeah.